thoughts? And I'm doing this for the sake of my friend who... I'm recording this for the sake of our, my friend who uh, <laughs> wants to... Who's doing the summaries. I felt like it was only fair to him that he was like this and didn't want to hear that conversation. Yeah, how are you? Hello? No, but don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. Come on in. Come on in. We'll never do that again. <laughs> so we pray... You walked in right after the prayer. Cool. The floor is open. I said normally what I'm going to do is on Friday. Did you all get the summary? Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Okay. Yes. So on Fridays, we'll deliver a summary. I have a friend in Arizona who is wanted to be a part of the conversation. So he said, obviously, he couldn't Skype in because he's three hours behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would change. But he was willing to write the summaries for us every Friday. And then Saturdays, I want to be able to deliver uh, questions for consideration. I did not do that yesterday. But... Um, and then Sunday afternoons, hopefully by Sunday night, I'll be able to deliver a, a recap of the conversation. Um, that way, if anybody wants to carry on conversation Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're more than welcome to cool. do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's establish an, an opening question then, which is coming into the conversation about sexuality and gender. Where do you all normally fall in that conversation? I'm not asking you what you believe about homosexual marriage. What I'm asking is. Why why choose to be a part of the reading? Why is this, other than being pushed into it? Don't, don't say that thing. Um, Dave says I'm a pusher. I'll be a great, I could I could deal. I'd be good at it. I think I could really make a living. Look, Curtis Mayfield. Who's Curtis Mayfield? Um, well, but yes. At, at Old Chromatist Jama, Tennessee Pusher. Um, so maybe, and, and this can be, you know, hodgepodge, or however, like I said, I don't want to override a conversation. So where, where do you come into this, or what are the grounds for coming into this conversation? Josh, you go first, because I know you have a lot to say. Thank you. You do? I do. Um, you said you've been yearning for this, tell us if he's not giving you what you need. True. Is that why you're here? That's not the only reason I'm here. Um, I thought, I've never heard a any kind of major theological work on sexuality other than the, the typical uh, reform perspective. Um, and I wanted to explore that in a way that didn't feel confined. And this felt like something that could offer a discussion without necessarily being like, well, we have to say within these confines, we can't talk mm-hmm. about this and this and this, because we all have these common presumptions that we have to deal with. So I felt like coming to a discussion where those presumptions themselves were being talked about before we even got to the actual meat of the sexuality mm. part was really uh, crucial because it's something I've something experienced before. Mm. Hmm. And what, what are those presumptions? Well, I shouldn't say what are those presumptions. You talked about kind of a, uh, let's call it a, uh, uh, what do you call those tables where you hit the ball? You know, pinball. You talk about this kind of pinball experience that you can only rattle back and forth between confines. What are those standard confines that you want to challenge? Do you understand my question? Yeah. Rephrase it a different way to make sure. I'm basically asking if you want to come to this, if you want to have a conversation, not this, if you want to come to a text like this to explore what boundaries, you're basically saying there are boundaries in which we can talk about sexuality. Mm And the, what we always conclude is something that's only within those boundaries. Mm-hmm. But what if we could challenge the boundaries, you're saying? Now I want to go back and ask, what are the boundaries that you feel like you want to not just challenge, because we don't want your mom to hear this and think that you're just throwing off your entire childhood. 
Um, I hope this isn't some... <laughs> by the way, this should not be a coming out party for anyone who wants to make the change. Transgender change. Please consult the priest. <laughs> not this This is like the last thing you want to hear. is like, I came to this because I actually feel like a woman. <laughs> um, You're going to find somewhere else. So, what are those boundaries that you feel like constrain the gender conversation? Well, I think one of the things you mentioned in the, the chapter was talking about this kind of polarity between male and female genders that we've all, we've all kind of rested in as if, you know, making assumptions that you're either A or B, that there's no amorphous space in between, that there's no mm-hmm. room for, for Christianity without having these, these questions of identity tied so, so closely to what we consider gender to be. Um, and I'm kind of interested to see where she goes with that, because, like, you know, she was especially talking about the early, like, the early Desert Fathers or the early mystics, talking about some of their writings of, um, she mentioned Galatians chapter 3, I think, um, where it talks about in Christ they're, they're no longer slave nor free, mm. male nor female, mm-hmm. and that, that really piqued my interest, because, you know, all the conversations that I'm used to having about gender are always also, you know, carefully laced within the confines of scripture. Like, we can't go outside these boundaries. We can't talk about it outside these boundaries. You have to be very careful to stay within the lines. And yet, uh, also, there's things being brought to my attention within uh, the confines of scripture that I did not really think about in that light before. Like what she was saying about there's neither male nor female. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, I guess it's interesting to to ask the question, maybe... Maybe what we're, what we consider to be the gender norm or, you know, t- the norm when we talk about sexuality in a Christian perspective is actually more of a cultural conditioning to what scripture says rather than what scripture itself is actually mm-hmm. saying. And, you know, presenting the, the possibility of alternative perspectives is, I guess, something I find enticing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Feel a lot there. Thank you. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot. Other, I mean, other perspectives as to coming into the conversation, why gender, sexuality, self? Well, following up on that point, I mean, she also points out in the article about, you know, the, um, typically the confines on the conversation, you know, uh, a lot of times you have that strong evangelical mm-hmm. right-wing talk of sexuality um, yeah. that she m- mentions, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have that very progressive liberal anti-authority feminist mm-hmm. um, that both have weaknesses. Um, so I think that's a good point about the confines. Did everyone think that was, those confines are, I mean, is it consistent with what Josh is saying? Or, and do you find those confines, some people find those confines extremely liberating because the some types will say, gosh, it's clear, it's secure, it's stable, it doesn't give any room for interpretive mess. Um, I had a conversation um, yesterday with a parent. I went and smoked cigars. I tell my 18-year-olds, I went and smoked with a student. I tell my 18-year-old students that I'll buy you your first cigar when you turn 18. And so this, this kid, we went to get a cigar, and his dad wanted to come. So we're sitting there, the three of us, and his dad is very much a, a gung-ho, clean-up-the-doctrinal-confusion-of-the-church type guy. Uh, so we, we had a great conversation. It was actually really, really fruitful. The, the cigar is kind of disarming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it, was, it was a good experience, but he probably represents more of a norm 
that most people don't want interpretive open uh, space. Mm-hmm. They don't want any kind of vagary or ambiguity. They want clear, mapped out conditions. And so, I don't know if anybody else has thoughts on how that has affected your interpretation of gender, sexuality, selfhood, etc. I definitely do. I mean, I grew up in a conservative evangelical background, but coming into the, part of the reason I'm doing this is for my own personal benefit, but also because I'm coming into the human services field mm-hmm. as a therapist. And um, there's a lot of gray areas, so just trying to increase the, my comfort level with the gray areas. And because mm. it's, it can be, a, like, it's the depth of the struggle for some people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very deep. And so, like, it's, it's not this this is the way it is. Like, when you actually come into contact with people that are experiencing gender struggles, it's a lot different than you would think. Mm-hmm. So, I just kind of want to, I guess, get more comfortable with the topic. Do you think right now, this is just, you don't have to answer this, but I guess if anybody can answer it, but since you brought it up, do you think Christianity lacks the language to be able to talk about this very precisely? Mm-hmm. Meaning, like, and, and, how do we get from the, let's just say, truncated dictionary of options, the truncated lexicon? When people talk about gender, they only have a certain set of resources, a certain set of ideas that they can kind of sift through. How do we expand that reservoir, that that sort of trunk of options, without making someone feel overwhelmed because this text she's digging into some really really intricate theological issues but it opens up those boundaries but in opening up those boundaries it simultaneously is a little overwhelming Mm -hmm. so how do we negotiate that how do we enter into conversations about gender in the local space that our that lack terminology to be able to really critically analyze. There seems to be, she's showing this, there's great Christian resources on this. There's Christian thought has resources on how to think about these issues. But if the Christianity is going to interact with these issues, it's going to have to do so at a very, very deep level. Mm-hmm. So how do you get out of that sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of conundrum? You know, do you capitulate to, do you just commit to the narrow set of options that our local Christianity has? Do you force people into these deep conversations and alienate them from their ability to think in a local way? So how do you, do you know them? My question makes sense. Yeah, I think you come into it knowing people where they're at developmentally. Mm. Um, and then, like, going from there. I think that I would I probably wouldn't have been ready for a conversation like this a year ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people can grow to that point where they're, so it's just kind of gauging that, mm-hmm. where people are at with it, and then kind of encouraging people to interact with people who have different beliefs mm-hmm. on topic mm-hmm. and stuff like that, because that can also be a big part of that development. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, outside the therapy world, what about the rest of you in terms of, most of your gender conversations are not going to come to clinical environment. Yeah. I mean, most of our gender conversations are going to come, you know, Sidebar at work, um, some offhand comment that another teacher makes when they see a kid with skinny jeans. 
I mean, that's my world. This yeah. is just yeah. some random, oh, our world's going, you know, there's no male and female, just disgruntled, and mm-hmm. you just, there's no space. I mean, if you talk about the reform boundaries, you're talking about a really narrow political boundary now. Yeah. And in order to stretch out that boundary, it requires that those lines are malleable and flexible, but they're not. They're rigid. Yeah. Right? And so, how do you go about that? Well, I, I, I mean, I think that's where the conversation has in my experience been in the past is like there is male and female there are two very rigid very I don't know archetypes mm-hmm, I guess mm-hmm. when the more <clears throat> the more I've I've experienced you know in my own life and in other people's lives people I work with and everything it's much more of a uh, um, scale I guess, kind of mm-hmm. uh, spectrum. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the word I was thinking of, yeah, spectrum. And that's kind of borrowing some from the, you know, the, the counseling world, too. And do um, both of you have counseling experience? Is that your... I, I have... We are in the same program. Yeah, they're okay. in the same program. And he has I, a wife that talks about it all the time. Yeah. Got it. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so, I mean, yeah, so I, I think it's... It, from my experience, it's much more of a spectrum mm-hmm. where, you know, there's... You, you have the two types, but then there's so much gray area, like you said, in between. Mm-hmm. And you're so, interacting with it, and I think even outside of the clinical world, like that's an important yeah. thing, like to interact because you you know these people. Yeah. And well, and, and then and then I think you too. I want this. This might be more of more basic than where we are right now in the conversation, but defining gender versus sex. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which gets really blurry really fast because of what you're saying, how the Christian world doesn't have much knowledge or just vocabulary to talk about it. Terms get blurred really fast yeah. in a lot of conversations, and that can be frustrating. Do you, yeah. I want to ask, I want to put the spotlight on you for a second, Dave. What about you? I mean, you work in a digital world. You're constantly in conversation with people who are want to promote their businesses. Do you run into that from a more marketing standpoint? Like, do you have to, I mean, like, are people saying, hey, we don't want this market? Because probably you have conversations where people say, we want to reach the 18 to 35 market, male, um, 35 grand to 50 grand. You probably deal in demographics. And do you see this gender conversation invading your your own digital demographic kind of experience. Does that question make sense? Yeah, uh, generally it doesn't, or I don't notice it because uh, it is a, well, then it's probably a bad thing, but most of our clients are business-to-business type clients, so they're generally, you're marketing to males 35 to 65. Okay. Um, we say business to business, that means I'm going to... You don't, but not business to consumer. We're not okay. marketing like iPhones or right. products. We right. We services. And, okay. Um, so you're typically going after business owners or executives or which are, you know, dominantly male. Um, okay. Well, I want to ramp up the question then when you're ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, I guess I notice it just because it's you know it's all male, but I yeah. you know I don't sit in quite I I I think more about gender differences and spectrum 
uh, more in my marriage than anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and that's probably different from where you uh, ask the next question. But well, yes, it is. <laughs> but unless you want to stay there. Uh, I would just say, just... You, you know, remember you're on record here. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, my wife is a very <coughs> ambitious and initiative, you know, bossy yeah. woman. So is mine. And so that's much different than what I grew up with mm-hmm. and, you know, staying with my parents and community. And so, um, you know, my wife is going to be the breadwinner mm-hmm. um, sort of thing. And um, so I definitely had to negotiate from my previous conservative um, mm-hmm. ideals of mm-hmm. uh, gender roles into to what we have now. And uh, so... So the, the most. so the reconditioning on your understanding of gender is primarily through your experience in your marriage, not so much from a reading or some something in your work, or does it come from that? Well, gender? sure, reading, but not so much work, I would say. Okay. Okay, so I want to ramp up a question. So one of the things she says in the text is, she says gender is embodied difference. So she wants to get away from the notion that your gender is your genitals. Gender is about distinction. So you're, quote, engendered, Whenever you're not me. So in some sense, you're a different gender than me right now, strictly because you're another being. Mm -hmm. And she says that's fundamental in understanding because Christian language has always understood that humanity and God are distinct from one another. And that distinction is critically expressed in the distinction, not only vertically between God and people, but between people and people. And that if we lose those distinctions, whether they be male genitalia or female genitalia, whatever they are, if we lose distinction... We eradicate the beauty of a manifold reality, right? Although she's not saying that, therefore, that means we need to have strong males and strong females, females that, you know, wear this and males that wear this. She's not saying that. We just need to maintain some kind of critical notion of embodied difference. Does that make sense to everybody, right? Yeah, but I... Sorry. It's okay. And all aspects of personality and identity are, you cannot describe someone without saying that they're different from someone else. You can't say yeah. someone's pretty unless you're saying someone else is ugly. You can't yes. say they're happy unless someone else is sad. There's no way to define a person without the social context. Because to define or describe someone is to set them apart from everyone else. And are you advocating that's a good thing or just an ab- absolutely It's just like the nature of personality and yeah. interaction. Yes, and I think what she's driving at is that modern day gendered language wants to mute that. So that you have a spectrum, you can sort of imagine I have the slide rule on that spectrum that I can just freely move from here to here. Mm-hmm. If I have the ability to just freely migrate along that spectrum, it's not a spectrum any longer. This color and this color are the same. It's just, I'm just waffling back and forth. And so she wants to say, not that people can't move, but to move along that spectrum is a massively critical event. Mm-hmm. Not just free willy-nilly choice making. And um, I think that's interesting because she wants to propose, on the one hand, that gender distinctions are superseded in, in the giving of the Christ. And therefore, there is no male nor female, as you quote this text. But ironically, that is parodied. Do you know what I mean when I say parody? So P-A-R-O-D-Y, like a film that mocks another film. But it's a, the parody of that exists in our world where there is no male nor female, but it's two different kinds of things. Like in the Christian mindset, there is no male nor female, but there is still male and female. Mm-hmm. There is no slave nor Greek nor Jew, but there is still Greek and Jew. So it's a paradoxical both and, mm-hmm. 
Whereas the parody she's describing over here, or that she's alluding to, is that it's all sort of a white plane where the distinctions are eradicated. Does that make sense? And now I'm going to put the question to you is, is that what you experience in the digital domain? That the reason you don't see gender problems, business to business, is because everybody is equalized under the dollar. Everyone is equalized under the pressures of consumption or the pressures of sales. And is that a parody of the gender kind of revolution she's describing theologically? Yeah, I would, I would definitely say so. I mean, it would definitely fit one of the categories that um, she talks about. The three critiques or after that? Uh, let's see. One of the resistance to systematic theology is, is that it... Uh, the hegemony? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or the... The um, the not seeing the uh, oppressive nature when everything gets yeah um, because we know that from a Christian perspective and from a ontological perspective that differences gender can never be eradicated as much as we would try yeah and so that um, you know in the world that I see. Um, you know, they're definitely oppressed voices, um, particularly women in authority positions. Uh, and that's a bad thing. And I think that comes up a lot in the um, digital and tech world with people like Yahoo's CEO mm-hmm. um, kind of challenging notions of gender and, and sex. Um, so I don't know if I really answered your question. Well, I'm a, let, me, let me make it more charged. Do you spade and neuter people when you put up websites? Probably so. I mean, you're flattening. I mean, the people on the end of the screen, we don't give, we don't give two shakes what you are. Mm-hmm. What you use your genitals for, we don't care. We just, just subscribe. I mean, does the digital domain do that? Does it spade and neuter the population? That's what I'm asking. I don't have an answer for it. I don't know. I just thought you might be able to comment on it. Um, I think it does, but I think it would not do it under the guise of gen- I think it pushes a homogenization. 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 Yeah. Uh, like you said, maybe under the dollar, maybe not so much of... Uh, of gender, I of maleness. Because um, we, when we make websites, we are cognizant of the fact that it is, you know, that's our target. It's male, 35, mm-hmm. 65, rich. Um, so, um, I mean, we're, we're going, you know, white. So, I mean, we're typically going after, you yeah. know, the, the majority um, or majority. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if I could say that the, I definitely think the digital medium pushes homogeneity. I just don't know if it's a gendered homogeneity. And so when, to make sure... Gendered in the terms of male, female. Can now. you explain the word homogeneity for those of us that in the room that might be... Uh, a, a sameness um, across the board. No difference. Lacking difference. Okay. Think throughout. 
Okay. Interesting. Um, so to give Coakley a fair shake, let's ask the question about systematic theology as a whole. Her whole first chapter is committed to saying that she wants to take on a systematic theological project. She says, I want to address all these different kinds of questions under one general rubric. Uh, questions of gender, questions of selfhood, questions of desire, questions of prayer, they all fall under the same thing. And so, so just for summary's sake, let's almost look at it in a kind of cervical light. <laughs> right? Um, Sorry. So here you have. Let's look at. Yeah, well, hey, why not? Um, it's, fit, it's fitting. So she has all these different, seemingly disorganized things here at the top: prayer, gender, sexuality, all this kind of stuff. And she funnels these down to a singular concern, and that singular concern is these issues of prayer, of gender, are all really issues of desire, right? And the only way we can talk about desire it, properly as a Christian would be to talk about inner Trinitarian desire, how God desires himself or herself, if you want to be um, considering the nature of the conversation, how God desires God's self, and how that desire, Allah's spirit, gives ground to our own desires, or how we participate in that desire. And then when we participate in that desire, it restructures the way we think about these top things. Does that make sense? So, we normally think about these things as independent functions of the self. Right? I pray, I have a gender, I do this. I am the fulcrum. Right? Um, but she's trying to change that and say the self doesn't need to be the fulcrum, but desire is the fulcrum. What is desire? Can desire happen? And she says there are three critiques of systematic theology that she wants to address. Number one, that is the ontotheological problem. So let's just talk about that for a second. Let's talk about these critiques in turn. The ontotheological problem assumes that God is a being among beings. That when we describe God, that when we talk about God, we treat God as if it's just, if God is just a gigantic human. And therefore, all the qualities that apply to the human then therefore can be transposed onto God just with, a, with an exponent at the top, like 10 to the 15th power. So God's just a bigger version. And therefore, people have criticized theology over time and said, you're just making God in your own image. Effectively, all we end up doing is making God in our own image. And she says, actually, no. Theology has, should always be a process of what she calls apophatic theology, and apophatic means not saying things. So cataphasis would be like praying a lot. Apophasis would be like saying silent. And she says theology has always had this contemplative posture where you pull yourself away from saying stuff because in the not saying, you're saying. As my wife always says to me, I'm not just saying, I'm just saying, but you need to change the clothes over. <laughs> She'll say, I'm not just saying, I'm just saying, but... <laughs> uh, so that's the apophasis. So let's talk about that. In, the, in our Christian experience, even now as Anglicans, uh, let's talk about the ontotheological critique and how do we as Christians sort of respond to that claim that we are making God in our image even in our language of describing God. That we're make, bringing God down from the heights of transcendence and making God just a being among beings. 
It kind of reminds me of... I'm going to let you have the floor and go to the bathroom. Okay. Can I do that? Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> kind of reminds me of what Thomas Aquinas said after he, uh, at the very end of his life, you know, he published the Summa Theologica, and, um, you know, which is one of the greatest systematic theological works of Christian history. Then he said, you know, basically it was all meaningless. Um, he's, you know, by the end of his life, he said, I, I, I could just stay silent because there's so much about God that I haven't said and that can't really be said. And so for me to try and even um, compress the half of it into this work really just did nothing. Um, which I think, in some sense, that sounds really despairing, but in another sense, it, it kind of reveals the posture we should have when approaching a systematic theology of any kind, which is to say... Um, not not the systematic theology is trying to make God in our own image, but rather that we're just it's kind of a contemplative wondering. I understand. Yeah. Um, and to be subsumed into mystery more than to be subsumed into some kind of clear cut rationalizing of God. You put a lot more eloquently like what I was thinking. I was just thinking about the mystery of God and like the accepting that mystery and. Um it's to me, it's comforting mm-hmm. in a sense, but to a lot of people, it's it's not. So, <coughs> yeah, I think there's I think there's the view, and I don't hold to this at all. But I think I think there's the view that like if if like you know at the end of his life, everything. Was meaningless because yeah. they're so broad. Then, like, why even try? Yeah, you know, like, what's what's the what's the point of going, of putting forth the effort if you're never really going to get anywhere substantial at, at the end? But I, I mean, I I think that's false. I think that's I don't hold to that, but I know people who do. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like my my you know my dad's a reformed guy in the strictest sense. Um, and he actually completely believes everything about the reformed vision, and he's he continually says he says I think the most perfect prayer is just Amen, because God already knows everything that yeah. I have to pray, and of course I I concept this debate with him back and forth about it. But you know it kind of relates to what you're saying in the sense that you know if if we can never if we can never fully encapsulate all the beingness of God, then why even try? And which goes back to kind of, you know, we can look at systematic theology from different from two different perspectives. We can either say, well, we can't do it. We can't encapsulate all of God in a work, so why bother? Or we can say, well, actually, that's not the point at all. The point is never to encapsulate. It's never to encapsulate God. It's to actually fold ourselves within him through mm-hmm. contemplation. Yeah, which is her argument, yeah. You know, um, Stephen Otis is a colleague of mine at, at CAK, and uh, that's one of the things we're constantly talking about, is that um, Nicholas Cusanus, you remember, wrote On Learned Ignorance. You know, that you have to learn how to know less. Um, and that's that's a difficult thing. But, at least historically, the claim, the criticism stands you know, insofar as that that's what most of our Christian brethren are doing, are trying to encapsulate God. They are trying, in the same way they try to do that with gender, ironically. Mm-hmm. 
The idea is if I can establish simple poles, a simple binary, there's male, there's female, and I can establish a simple pole, there is God, there is not God, then in some senses, I have eaten from the tree, and I know the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of safety. Yeah, well, and a sense of power. And a sense of control. And, and you look at the garden environment, and Stephen would tell you this all the way through, all the way down, is that you look at the garden environment and that gender and knowledge are wrapped up together. Mm-hmm. And so far as the, the second that they eat from that, their nudity, their discomfort with their own sexuality, their um, lack and inability to expose themselves, all bound up in the same narrative. And so it's the attempt to put oneself in an infinite posture and say, I know everything that precisely confounds or confuses or complicates the, the gendered consequence that comes after that with the fig leaves. You know, he argues, and I think this is profound, that they put on figs because their skin isn't enough anymore. They need an alternate covering. Mm-hmm. They need a, a superior identity, a more structured identity because their skin is sort of, you know, open to, it, it's not impervious. And so they need something more rigid, more protective. And the, yeah, so those are just ramblings, but. Well, that's it. Kind of going back to something you were talking about earlier, like that's in a sense too putting the fulcrum onto Mm -hmm. themselves. Yes. They're understanding themselves in relation to themselves rather than beforehand. It was basically just in relation to God. Yep. Yep. That my relationship is on the surface, not with myself first, yeah. but and then inside the other. Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, not to redirect the conversation, but for the sake of time, um, I'm gonna jump on to another couple questions. Unless they want to stay here, I know Alex. You'll sit there the whole time and percolate, and then let me say something towards the end. But you have the floor if you want it. But. Um, <laughs> so the next thing then. She says that the next critique is. Um, the next critique. <laughs> well, the wind is blowing pretty intensely. So. Just a little bit. Um, the next critique, she says, is the hegemonic critique. And that's the idea that theology puts certain people in power and certain people not in power. That those who have access to the truth, uh, who have access. And it stems from the first critique. If you have access to God and you know who God is and you can make those claims, then you can oppress. And marginalize the other voices. You can push people to the corners. So let's say, let's let's put it in a, in a familial light. If the elder brother knows everything that mom and dad want in the house, then he can maintain a position of power over the younger sibling. And any of the things that the younger sibling might be experiencing, any nuance, any pain, it doesn't fit with the norm. It doesn't fit with what we're doing. It needs to be expunged. It needs to be kicked out. It needs to be expelled. Uh, we can't tolerate it. So what about that claim that Christianity has been sort of um, pimped out by power, <laughs> for lack of a better term? Um, that she is, as Luther said, she's the whore of reason. I mean, that was what she said. he said about um, the Catholic body. But Christianity has been used to leverage power systems. Thoughts on that critique and her response? There's somebody coming up the porch. I might be Mr. Isaac. Maybe. <laughs> Welcome. Mr. Isaac. Mr. Isaac. 
So I think you maybe inadvertently said something there at the end that I was that I was thinking that the the charge there is that Christianity or religion has used or Christianity or religion has oppressed. Mm-hmm. That's the question. And then kind of what you said there in the end was that people have used Christianity to oppress, and I think that's more of the actuality mm-hmm. of, of what's happened is that the people already in power, the males, the, you know, if you want to go that way, the, mm-hmm. the I don't know, whatever, the, yeah, the, wealthy. the royalty, the wealthy, the, yeah. yeah, have used religion, have used Christianity specifically to oppress. Yeah. And her claim is clearly that it shouldn't be, and, and of course the word hegemony here, or you can say hegemony if you'd like. Hegemony here just means, for, uh, I'm assume, maybe I should assume that we're all familiar with it, but if we're not, for the sake of clarity, uh, hegemony here would mean being able to maintain a position of power over people and those subordinates accepting that position of power uh, implicitly. For example, we all think that it's kind of like what you do to the kid at Christmas. Don't do it. Santa's watching. He's going to get you. There's an elf on the shelf. Trust me. He's a spy. <laughs> He's overseeing everything that you do. And one of my professors used to say, be careful. The people who told you about Santa Claus also told you about Jesus. So you've got this guy, <laughs> got this guy looking at you. Um, you accept that and you embrace that. You begin to say, the child begins to say, no, I, I want to be watched. Um, it's kind of a Stockholm Syndrome, you know. Um, so the argument here is she's, she's suggesting that Christianity has never been about systems of power, but undoing power. Mm-hmm. However, most of the narrative we grew up with was that Christianity was a mechanism of freeing you from sinfulness, and that if you engage righteousness, you would rise to the top, inadvertently. Mm-hmm. You know, think about our schools, you know. He's doing the right thing. He's doing the wrong thing. Celebrate here. And it's sort of you're just bred with that. Or let's say it's engendered in you. And uh, But she says if we practice prayer and contemplation, we can dispossess ourselves of that power. What are your thoughts on that? Does Christianity have the resources within itself to disempower, to become powerless? And is that desirable? I use that word desirable in a manifold way. She does. Does my question make sense? If it doesn't, I mean, I'm happy to repeat it. Does Christianity ever have the resources within itself, though? That's Because I think that I would answer your question with a question in the sense that... Oh, you're going to be Christomorphic here. <laughs> Please. No, I'm just giving you a hard time. Um, I can tease you in a way that I can't tease everybody else. That's true. Mm-hmm. I'll take it. Because you have the power over me. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm finding out. And then later when I wash your feet, I'm going to say, one of you here will betray me. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, but I mean, you know, like every time, every time Christianity or, or I guess Christian culture assumes that um, any kind of system or theology is, is giving it power, it's, it's really kind of like a, an inversion of what of, of the power that Christianity receives. Because 
whenever Christianity as a culture starts thinking that it has resources within itself to propagate any kind of righteousness or any kind of right yeah. standing, yeah. then that's when it loses its power. Um, because, of course, the inherent power of Christianity is that we actually give up the desire for power in order to receive something greater from right. outside of ourselves. I was asking students this week, they, they were talking about how they didn't like the fact that they were told to go to Monday morning prayer because they were, quote, forced and they needed to be able to choose it. And for some reason that all of a sudden makes it better, you know. And I compared it to all these other things and I said, well, what about eating, right? You're clearly not, you're compelled to eat. Your, your body gives you these neurochemical responses. You begin to feel certain things. You react to that eating. In fact, you do it so repetitiously, you never even ask yourself the question, who's forcing me to eat? You don't get mad at your body. You just do it. And every time you have this continual pleasure, and they say, well, yeah, but you have a choice about things that which you eat. And I say, what, what, what if the reality is the only choice that you have is to not eat? The only choice you can make is to actually abstain. You don't have a choice to eat. You're compelled to eat. You're only making a derivative selection, which is not a volitional choice, but rather uh, an option amongst fascist pressure, as it were. But what if the only choice you have to make is to not eat? And I said, isn't that what monasticism has always recognized? You know, the only choice I can make is to not eat. The only choice that I can make is to not have money. The only choice that I can make is to not do something. So it sounds like what you're saying, in a similar way, Christianity only has offered us the ability to dispossess ourselves. Mm -hmm. The only thing that we can do with any kind of freedom everything else would be bound up in worldly power. The only thing we can do is withdraw. The only thing that we are capable of doing. And she argues that that's exactly what prayer is. Prayer is a practice of dispossession. Um, but that's not typically the Christian narrative we live with in our world. So why, or should we? Should we take that model of prayer, that model of asceticism and contemplation, um, where does that take us? sense that Christ himself says, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not you don't want something to have power over you. You're going to have something that dominates you regardless of whether you want it or not. You know, you can either have God or money. You can't serve, you know, two masters. Mm -hmm. The point being, you're always going to have a master. Um, and so, you know, you can let your master be your own kind of uh, distorted desires. Or you can, like, uh, you know, she was saying in the reading, or you can let your, your master actually be Christ going within you and shaping your desires. But either way, you have a master. Yeah, I mean, and she uses the phrasing unmastery. Mm -hmm. That Christianity is a practice of unmastery. It's kind of like, uh, I guess it's, uh, 
the Mad Hatter. So your unbirthday, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your it's your unmastering. Hmm. Well, let's look at the third critique. You want to jump in? I was going to say, and those things, particularly as it regards money, I mean, being in the advanced capitalist society mm-hmm. we are, dispossession and unmastery are, you know, an- antithetical to what's ingrained in, in uh, if you're talking about things being engendered in technology and space, you know, yeah. that, that for sure is it. Um, that ideal of owning and aggregation and control, mastery, um, that's a very difficult thing to do. In conjunction with that, let, let's materialize it. Uh, you know, you, there is a, I think the question that, that she asks at the end of the reading is, okay, Christianity is about desire, prayer, dispossession, and mastery. She then says, does that then make us just doormats for the powers of the world? Does that just a covert way of making us weak and to be run over? Or moreover, she says, what are the particular forms, material forms, which will grow out of this sense of a mastery? And so let's just dabble in that before we go to that third critique, or even if we don't get to the third critique, it's fine. She says... She says that, and I was I was reading CNN I, every night. I kind of go through the news and just kind of see what's there. And there, there was a little link that said, "Hate your smartphone? Check this out." You know, so I clickbait it. You know, I follow it. <laughs> it was a CNN article, so uh, I wasn't going down one of those like promoted sites. Um, there wasn't a half naked woman in the front of it. Don't worry. So I click on it, and there was a design festival in London this past week where a company I think it was called Punked was the name of the device, and it was a Phone that can only have only have two functions. Oh, yeah. You call, you text. That's it. Had an e-ink screen on it. Had a button pad, and it was really sleek. It was really kind of Urban Outfitters looking. <laughs> and um, the designer said that the, one of the steps towards controlling the, the digital technology and it not controlling us is to delimit functions, mm-hmm. is to narrow functionality of a device. So, is that? Could the, the I don't want to say the thoughtful Christian as as in that superior to any other, but as a consequence of this group, how you know can we say, hey, that's actually in a roundabout way, um, the road towards gender, you know, uh, how shall we say transcendence? I know that sounds weird because it sounds like gender's way over here and that's about bodies and genitals. And over here we're talking about a phone. But for Coakley's standpoint, we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about unmastery. We're talking about dispossession. We're talking about embodied difference. Would that be, you know, based on what you just said, it, would that be a step towards unmastery in the sort of business world is to start to make devices and make, materialize these elements that were in their own design, pronounced unmastery. And you don't have... I mean, I'm, I'm directing it towards you. You don't have to answer, but I, I, I am interested in what you have to say because you're way ahead of me in these areas. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think that... Um, it, I think it will be hard to see that just because um, a lot of the things that move or turn the engine of technological innovation is um, 
you know, things that are profitable, so it's got to fit a pretty um, standard form. Um, or it's uh, designed by typically males um, who don't shower, have long hair, that sort of thing. Sorry, I'm not computer all day. I think in the digital space, it would definitely come from people like um, Anonymous um, or uh, things like Bitcoin mm-hmm. um, that really challenge the the structure um, of how things fit together and. Um, because in the tech world, so many things are layered and dependent on one another, um, you know, it's hard for it to be, it's got to be kind of a mass, it's got to be a communal effort to disrupt the hmm. um, the flow of things. Um, so dispossession in that sense is not a unilateral thing. It's not just, we have to be dispossessed. or dispossessed to one another collectively in order to disrupt a larger scale for system larger of scale, mastery. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. Thomas Merton, uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with his writings. He was a, a 1940s era Trappist monk. Um, but one of the things he says in his essay on love is he says, the essence of love is to to be willing to to see another person as they are, not for who I want them to be. Mm-hmm. In essence, to dispossess them of myself mm-hmm. and so to allow them to exist in their own uh, being rather than in my shaping of their being. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, let me ask the last. Uh, talk about the last critique, and then we'll conclude with a, um, a final thought. Um, oh, I was going to say. I mean, hopefully. Yeah. No, please. Um, what I never really thought about, but the typical feminine. Is the destabilization? Yeah. Uh, mm. And uh, so, in that sense, you know, the challenging of structures and and whatnot is a, you know, a uh, uniquely feminine thing, which I, you know, didn't really think about before. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the third critique. So the third critique is that theology tends to be phallic. Um, it tends to be masculine. So the first one is we make God a being among beings. The second one is that theology is about power. And the third one is that theology is about maleness. And it eradicates the sort of feminine concerns for destabilization. Um, she argues that no, again, if the process is dispossession, then there cannot be, then if contemplative prayer and dispossession is the core of the Christian mind and the core of the Christian experience, that it already responds to that critique by embracing it and forwarding it. Um, so thoughts on Christianity and maleness, uh, that critique, and does Christianity have the history to rectify that? Christianity and maleness. And maybe in our own experience now, I mean, how different is it for us seeing joy in robes? Well, in my experience... She's going to hell, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we had to, when we went to a new church, 
and there were women serving communion, my parents couldn't invite my grandparents because my grandparents would have been extremely upset if they had seen women serving communion. Mm. And my mom and my dad had to think for a while whether they were willing to go to that church. Like that was a big deal for them mm. to see women. And the first day week that we went there, a woman baptized someone mm. as well. And they did not believe that was okay. But mm. they were like, well, it doesn't happen very often, so we'll just look away from that. So, How has it been now that you serve? Oh, I, I love it. Um, but how is it with them? I think my parents have... They've kind of... I think it's unfortunate the way that they, they've gotten to a place where they don't care, but it's not because they realize that those boundaries might not be correct, or if you want to look at it that way, but it's just because they've lost, they don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. Like their experience with religion has been something that was not, didn't nurture them, it's something mm-hmm. that just required to participate in. Mm-hmm. They're going to a church that they don't enjoy, they don't get any nourishment from so they become very apathetic to religion in general so they're kind of apathetic to my participation in it because they don't really care hmm. so um so it's not progress it's sort of significant yeah. regress yes they're just like they it no longer holds value either way gotcha whether i participate or not so because my dad's a deacon and he He's being a deacon. He's just a deacon who's a male in the church. He's mm. been going for three years, so that means he's a deacon. You know, it's just. Do you think on and this is directed towards you, but I'm going to open the door to everyone. But do you think on a macro scale, that's most Christians' response to anything controversial? Is that I see that in my students that when something reaches significant cultural change, you have women priests, you have homosexual unions. That instead of Christians pressing deeply into the theological scrutiny, they just out ah, of heck with it. And they just say, who cares? It makes me think of when someone goes into emotional crisis, because there's this, when something bad happens to someone, there's the crisis, and it builds and builds, and then it snaps, and they, do, they detach from it. You know? mm. And so I think that with any crisis, whether it's a theological crisis or losing a loved one, you know, there's this point where you just kind of like snap and detach, because you just can't hold on to it any longer. Mm. And so I think that, yeah, that happens quite often, you know, we sometimes, it gets a point to where it's harder to press into that pain and that struggle, and so the response is just to, like, let go completely. And do you think that that happens collectively, not just individually, insofar as, like, you know, is that what happens to churches, is that they either, the, the two options are to, it's fight or flight kind of thing, yeah. and and these kinds of conversations are practice of prayer and dispossession that most people are just not going to have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's the Come what may, kind of like oh whatever, just let it go. Whatever happens, happens, kind of. Yeah. And I think that that point can be reached from two very different paths. I think that you can get there from not caring anymore and letting go, or you can get there from trusting in God and saying, you know what, I don't know what should happen here, mm-hmm. so I'm just gonna let God take care of it. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the, I don't care anymore. God can do whatever because I'm not invested any longer. Yeah. Somehow, God is in charge and screw it are the same thing for yeah. many presidents. Okay, fuck it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. You're on yeah. record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a, whatever. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, yeah. 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 Like that, absolutely. Okay. Well, I mean, no, I'm glad you said I mean, you're absolutely right. Yeah. The other end, 
too, because you mentioned fight or flight, it can become like a fight mode for some Christians. So they do care, but it's to the point where they're not willing to engage yeah. in conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's take it to the very the last thing uh, we got. We're we're in good good sitting here. We've got 15 minutes left, so this is a good point to transition the conversation to the deepest registers. She uses the term all the way down. Her resolution to this, her proposal in the text that we continue to read throughout, is that Trinitarian reflection will give us a way to rethink desire as we go back up from the yonic. <laughs> that Trinitarian reflection will give us a way to think about desire, which will then reconstruct those notions of gender and all these other sorts of elements. But that movement back up from Trinitarian reflection is the movement of prayer. That prayer will take us back into the world of complexity. You know, if I use that diagram there, all this stuff that's on the surface um, has to be enriched by deep, deep theological reflection on the triune. So in the last part of the text, she tries to demonstrate how the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit are critical because they propose a threeness um, for what we usually reduce to a two-ness. So let's just open the floor on thoughts on how to sort of appropriate that theological contribution to say, okay... How now does threeness become the chief way of thinking and praying into embodied difference? So, go ahead. And don't say P-ness. Oh, uh, I mean, I think the greatest thing that the, that, that threeness provides is, uh, you know, we're not stuck on uh, binary position anymore. We have a, there's a third position um, to mediate the two. And that third position is always moving. Yeah. Um, and growing. And I think that's, you know, I think that's what she's going for there. Um, to be able to, um, you know, I don't know if you all have, are into like structuralist or post-structuralist philosophy, but, uh, you know, that binary is, you know, big term and understanding meaning and you know like you pointed out earlier about mm-hmm. happiness and sadness is kind of what they say linguistically is that um, that's how we make meaning um, by negatives and you, you're bound to these binaries that are, are always plaguing us and I think that the, the third position offers us uh, a freedom to see them both and to um, kind of be at the same time with them that may be a little abstract, but that's good. I, mean, I like it. I love what she says, how she parallels um, our, our Christianity's very binary stance on male and female to mm-hmm. Christianity's, uh, Christianity's confusion on the role of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. How she says, you know, we, we tend to see God as father, son, father, son. Mm-hmm. And we tend to see people as male, female, male, female. We never really... We have a lot of trouble looking at the Spirit because we don't know what to do with the Spirit mm-hmm. in that configuration. Um, and kind of one, one of the things you were saying about binary uh, kind of, I guess, brought me to something Aristotle talks about a lot, um, which is the golden mean. And for anyone not familiar with that, mm. Aristotle says, you know, all of all of virtue uh, is is really a balancing act between two vices. 
you know, he talks about courage, for instance. He says courage is a is balancing act between fear and overboldness, you know. Um, or I don't remember what he uses, what term he uses for overboldness, but he says it's like the difference between charging headlong to battle with absolutely no reinforcements and shrinking back in fear, you know, when you have all the resources you need. He said courage finds that point in the middle. And he describes that for all virtues, but kind of what you were saying about the, the binary aspect of post-structuralism and then what Coakley is describing with the Trinitarian um, motif, it kind of reminded me of that in the sense that um, maybe what we need to be pursuing is like what she's talking about with finding this, this third in the middle that encompasses all and yet at the same time is in itself uh, separate. that makes any sense. What do you think about, she says that, of course my first instinct is to say, alright, let's say we have binaries, happiness, sadness, whatever. We make meaning via negation, right? This thing is not this thing. Um, I am not my childhood. Which ironically, when we grow up that way, we're actually reacting to the thing we don't want to be by juxtaposing ourselves to it, right? So it actually has more control over what we are than what we think, Mm -hmm. because we're trying to negate it. But what she argues, though, is that the spirit can't merely be a, let's use Aristotle's terms, a mean, or an averaging of the two, but the spirit must be a sort of an excess, which is not only just between them, but beyond them on both sides, which is this sort of infinite openness that allows the two poles to come into being to begin with. That's okay. Sit here, you mad? So mad. That she says here, the spirit could not be an add-on, an excess, or a go-between to what is already established as somehow more privileged dyad, the Father and the Son. The spirit can't just be this mm-hmm. pop in the film. Instead, the Holy Spirit is intrinsic to the very makeup of the Father and Son relationship. Not to say the Spirit precedes the Father and the Son, because when we're talking about Trinitarian language, we can't use chronological language. It's very difficult to say one begets the other, or one is before the other. But she is saying, in some sense, that the Father and the Son's very nature of, inner, of love, and that dyad, is actually born in that very love, which is the Spirit. So, we, we are we in danger of when we introduce... The binary, and we introduce the third, as the third just becoming a very sophisticated version of compromise. And that really the compromise is nothing more than embracing the binary and trying to negotiate the binary, but the binary is still the dominant... You started the conversation by saying these boundaries. But the binary still functions as the boundary. What if it were the other way around that the binary came from the thirdness? That... Two doesn't beget three, but three begets two. What if we what if we change the direction? Is that what she's arguing? How would that reconfigure our understanding of binary systems as they exist now? If my question makes any sense. Let me let me kind of give an analogy and see if it fits with what you're saying. I got the I kind of got this picture in my head of, of the, the game Monkey in the Middle, where you have you know two people throwing balls at each other, and this mm-hmm. person in the middle trying to catch it. Mm-hmm. Um, Is this more about your childhood? you feel <laughs> in, unimportant? I'm just joking. we got two therapists here, so yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, therapists on standby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But I guess what I'm saying is, is what you're describing kind of like that in the sense that the game cannot occur without a middle? You know, the two have no relationship to each other unless there's a middle to... Sort of. ...to basically set the stage? Sort of, it's kind of like... Stephen, um, I wish you were here for this, but one of the things he argues from a Jewish standpoint, maybe Jewish Kabbalists think this, I'm not sure which, which sect of modern Judaism argues this, but they argue that man in his origin, and this is a conjecture, that man in his origin was androgynous. That he doesn't have gender. That he is just man qua man. And the distinction comes from the unity. You begin in a kind of manifold, a kind of multiple. And from that multiple, possibilities could be anything. We draw out singularities. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That you begin with a cloud, you come down to a single, let's say, file. It's a god-awful comparison, but let's just allow it. Okay? Um, yeah. uh, but in some senses, or, or music. Music is a sort of a rhythm, an unending ocean. And we pick notes. What we presume, I think, what she's saying is that we begin with a binary. And if we super add the third to that binary, the binary still is constraining. It is binding to that third. It still describes what the third is. The third is just sort of the ball that goes back and forth between the two ping pong players. But what if thirdness was not a singularity, but thirdness was a condition? Thirdness was an openness. Thirdness was the realm of possibility. She uses that language. She uses the language of, she says, uh, differentiate, okay, in short, it is this, quote, reflexivity in God, this Holy Spirit, that makes incarnate life, italicized, possible. That the things in incarnate life which exist as singularities, as, Im as gender, embodied difference, mm -hmm. come from this condition of this new mythological condition, this spiritual condition. And so she's saying what's critical to our understanding of gender, if we're going to get over the gender binaries, we have to have a theology of spirit that is not reducing spirit to this sort of stepchild to the father and son supremacy. Mm -hmm. That if we only think father and son, then spirit's always going to be an addition, not a fundamental Fount or fountain. That's so the monkey in the middle analogy. I guess it works in part, but I would say the spirit is not just the monkey in the middle, but he's also the fans, the field, <laughs> the air, in the sense that the entire condition by which the two then arise. So you're saying that t the tenuousness is what prevents entropy. Yeah, extrapolate that. Well, in the sense that, like. In the very nature of reality, the very fabric of reality, the thing that sustains life is the fact that this thing and this thing are different, and therefore they're able to exchange energy. The opposite of that is entropy, where you have no life, but everything is... The Sucking it out from still. Yeah, 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 yes. So you're saying the spirit in, in that very condition of change and kind of the tenuousness of that, of not being this or this, but being kind of both <coughs> you're saying that's what allows... The life of everything else. Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. I think that's what she's arguing is the scriptural account of God giving life. Mm -hmm. I think that's what she's saying when God leans down and breathes into the nose of Adam. When, when God breathes 
That's what that is. And energy is not lost and or gained. It's just constantly a surplus. Mm-hmm. It's constantly a giving, which which cannot be reduced to a simple binary, yes. I think that's what she's arguing. Now, we haven't gone any further into the text. So the, the word that has kept on coming to my mind in this whole conversation of the Holy Spirit is the medium. The Holy Spirit is the mm-hmm. medium. Mm-hmm. And so if the Holy Spirit is the medium by which we can understand Father, Son, or male, female, or whatever, mm-hmm. then we are no longer bound by the the edges of our of our own mind's capacity to understand, but that the knowledge, the whatever is within this medium of the Holy Spirit, then that opens it up. Yes, mm-hmm. and she's effectively arguing, and I think this is the brilliance of it, that to be in the Spirit is to be in dispossession, because she says eternally that's what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit is constantly letting the Father and Son be in the front. In theological history, the Spirit is anonymous. The Spirit doesn't talk about itself. The Spirit always talks to something else. The Spirit falls on the Son. The Spirit points towards the Father. The Spirit points away from itself. So it's constantly anonymous because it's pushing. And so to be in the Spirit is to be in a life of prayer and of dispossession. So the Father and the Son gain their, if you could use the word gain, they are granted their binary beauty from this condition, or you're calling a medium of love, that never draws attention to itself, and therefore remains very difficult yeah. to locate. Yeah. Very difficult to say, there's the spirit and there it's not. Because the spirit doesn't draw attention to itself, it draws attention away. Because the spirit is a very gift of giving itself, which we're complicating the matter, but it's worth conversation. You were going to... It just it makes me think about... It's kind of cheesy, but like when you're doing marriage counseling, there's three people in the room. Mm. There's the husband, there's the wife, and then there's the marriage. Mm. And it's kind of like God says, the father, there's the son, and there's a relationship between them, and the Holy Spirit is the relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's, you can't, like, it's hard to point at the relationship. You yes. can't ask the relationship how it's feeling. You're asking the man, and then you're asking the woman. But together, there is this being, this relationship that does exist, but can only manifest through the expressions of these two people. Yeah, and to use Coakley's language, and I think this goes with what Josh and to use, your metaphor is that the marriage actually precedes the husband and the wife. You don't look, you're only Eric and Hannah until you, the marriage draws you into these positions. Yeah. The marriage makes you husband and wife. And so I think Coakley's argument is that if the spirit, if the marriage is just merely an afterthought of I arrive, you arrive, the marriage is this thing we pass back and forth between us or that we share. The marriage is always going to be sort of deflated or weakened by my own interests. I want what I want, you want what we want. Now if we're going to have a marriage, let's compromise. But if the marriage is outside or beyond us or in excess of us. It's an external. Yes, it's bigger than we are. Yeah. yeah. And therefore we learn from it to dispossess ourselves to one another and it grows. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. swells. It inflates. Mm-hmm. That is where I think I was going with the mic in the middle. That's a really good, good uh, comparison there. I keep visualizing an ellipse. Mm. You have those two points and then... The oval around it, which is dependent on where those two points are. A geometric yeah. image. With so, two loci, with two centers, with two circles. I like that. Fascinating. 
so every point along that ellipse is drawn from, if you take a string at each of those two points, and it's a little bit extra, and so it's always equidistant. The sum mm-hmm. of... I see what you're saying. Yeah. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah, but like the shape of the oval is... This is kind of a wild tangent, but would you say that maybe the very nature of spirit is to dispossess? Because it reminds me of, when you said the, the spirit's very nature is to draw attention away from itself, it almost reminds me of the, um, the account of Isaiah, where he falls before the angel, and the angel says, you know, don't fall before me, because yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I only represent someone greater than myself. I'm yeah. not the one who should, you should desire to worship. So... If, if the angels themselves are, are purely spiritual beings, then, based on what you said, would that, would that be the truest expression of spirit, is of dispossession? Through the angelic life, or just as an example through the angelic life? Um, as, as the angelic life relates to them being purely spirits. I see. I think I would draw a distinction between mm-hmm. spirits, little less, and Holy Spirit in a certain personal sense, but yes, I think they're related. I think that also, from a Christocentric view, the Son is always pointing to the Father. Mm-hmm. Always. I mean, the, all the way through the Gospels. I and the Father are one. The Father says this. The Father says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. After the Christ is resurrected and ascended, the Spirit points back to the Son. The Father points back to the Son. All the way through the Pauline letters. So they're always mutually pointing at each other. No, no you. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. Uh-uh. And Sergius Bulgakov says that that conversation would be silent if there were not vibrations between them. And the vibrations are spirit. The wind carries the vibrations. Bulgakov says that the spirit gives measure to the measureless. So because spirit is anonymous, you can't put parameters around spirit. You can't say, like you're saying, you can't point at the marriage. But it gives form from its own formlessness which is like hovering over the waters of the deep, drawing out form. And um, so, yes, that sort of constant dispossession, I think that's what Coakley is trying to argue, is that we're never going to be able to resolve the gender controversy unless we have a very deep, pneumatological, Holy Spirit-minded, Trinitarian account of desire. Because desire in a pneumatological, when I use the word pneumatological, I mean Holy Spirit. We're never going to have an account of desire that is dispossessive unless it's a spiritual one. Because what, as you said, what is the Father's desire for the Son? It's dispossession. What's the Son's desire for the Father? Dispossession. He gives His life. Into your hands I commit my spirit. They're always giving. That very giving is spirit. And so, it's not desire by acquisition, getting something, accretion, collecting. It's a constant outflow. But the gender conversation, I think she's arguing ultimately, is situated in the account of desire where it's a kind of acquisition. It's an acquisitive gender. My identity starts, I feel like a woman, therefore I'm going to get womanness. Mm-hmm. I am gay, I'm going to get gayness. I'm heterosexual, I'm going to get a wife. She even argues in other places, you need to practice celibacy in your marriage Mm -hmm. to remind yourself that you're giving. 
You're not getting anything. You're constantly being dispossessed. Um, and so she's restructuring the conversation, I think. And I think that's why she's also critical of certain feminist theorists. Because mm-hmm. feminist theorists, she said, are just going to give in to that same kind of desire where you get, 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 get. And she's just pissed because all the men have been getting the stuff, so why don't we get some? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't change the conversation about desire. It's still about acquisition. It's about gain. And she says we could change the entire matrix if we just thought about desire differently. Because desire as practiced in prayer is always... It's always contraction. It's always shrinking. Does that make sense? So you're saying the impression I'm getting. Blow my nose. Keep going. I'm listening. From her argument is that I don't. I'll get it later. I don't possess maleness in myself. Rather, I'm most male when I'm giving to you. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, that's a good question. Maybe one, one we can throw in an email conversation, so nobody's on record for saying the f word. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know you don't. I'm glad you don't. I don't care either. Let's, let's all go around and say that. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. I said it. Your turn. Fuck. Okay. Now there's three. You're, okay. um, today you will be with us in paradise or on the cross. One of the two. Um, so. Uh, Okay, well, if there are no final thoughts, it's 12.07, so to honor our time commitments, people that have to be, be places, we'll, we'll pray and close unless anybody wants to give a last comment. Now we have to forget all that uh, unmastery, apathetic. Yeah, and go and serve yeah. our local empires. <laughs> Position ourselves as authorities and kings and queens. <laughs> yes. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thanks again. Uh, remember that on the syllabus there, we're three weeks on, off, and three weeks on. And the reason I did that is because just to kind of give a break. Mm-hmm. And also because Thanksgiving is the week of off. You should <laughs> You don't like that word. It, it's carrying on my baggage right now. Oh, oh, yeah. sorry. Okay, okay. okay. It's just like, uh. Remember on the proposed reading guide. <laughs> 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 I, almost, I almost drew another F word from you, didn't I? Syllabus. <laughs> 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 Okay, um, well, that being the case, we'll, we can pray and um, we can close, so thanks. Hopefully everybody gets a chance to read again this week. Uh, she does have a footnote on Wigan Pier. This one is called the- Doing Theology on Wigan Pier. It is a, it's a location in England, so if you're interested, she has a little footnote there. I encourage you to read to make sure you understand kind of where she's going with it. Um, but this next chapter will probably be about the same length, and she's continuing the conversation about why exactly... Um, gender and Trinitarian thought go together. So um, we'll explore that in more detail and, and hopefully um, draw draw things to some sort of fruitful direction uh, by the end. So if anybody would be really willing to pray for us, that'd be great. And then we can then we can conclude. Since I'm responsible for the opening so that's responsible. Okay. You mind? Sure. Dear Father, I appreciate my name, and I thank you for this um, this time, this space that we get to contemplate, um, that we get to reflect on the mystery of of your being and how that is carried out in uh, our concept of, ident- of identity, our concept of self, and of, of gender. Um, I pray that you would uh, 
just move through us, that your spirit would move through us in these coming weeks. Um, and this week, uh, that you would help us continue reflection on these uh, topics and that you would just show up where we are in our individual lives. Show up and uh, help us to gain a deeper appreciation for prayer and for ministry and help us to press in further into hard discussions so that we might um, just more and more see you revealed um, in whatever ways you choose. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. Is this a crib? Yeah. Why is there a mirror on a crib? Um, my grandpa built that crib for my mom when uh-huh. she was born. Uh-huh. And then my grandparents used it as their coffee table with that mirror on it.